This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Middlemarch by George Eliot, as read for LibriVox by Madame Tusk, www.rlowalrus.sitesled.com. Chapter 27 Let the high muse chant love's Olympian. We are but mortals, and must sing of man. An eminent philosopher among my friends, who can dignify even your ugly furniture by lifting it into serene light of science, has shown me this pregnant little fact. Your pier-glass, or extensive surface of polished steel, made to be rubbed by a housemaid, will be minutely and multitudinously scratched in all directions, but place it now against a lighted candle as a centre of illumination, and, lo, the scratches will seem to arrange themselves in a fine series of concentric circles around that little sun. It is demonstrable that the scratches are going everywhere impartially, and it is only your candle which produces the flattering illusion of a concentric arrangement, its light falling with an exclusive optical selection. These things are repairable. The scratches are events, and the candle is the egoism of any person now absent. Of Miss Vincy, for example. Rosamond had a providence of her own, who had kindly made her more charming than other girls, and who seemed to have arranged Fred's illness and Mr. Wrench's mistake, in order to bring her and Lydgate within effective proximity. It would have been to contravene these arrangements, if Rosamond had consented to go away to Stone Court, or elsewhere, as her parents wished her to, especially since Mr. Lydgate thought the precaution needless. Therefore, while Miss Morgan and the children were sent away to a farmhouse the morning after Fred's illness had declared itself, Rosamond refused to leave papa and mamma. Poor mamma, indeed, was an object to touch any creature born of woman, and Mr. Vincy, who doted on his wife, was more alarmed on her account than on Fred's. But for his insistence that she would have taken no rest, her brightness was all bedimmed, unconscious of her costume, which had always been so fresh and gay, she was like a sick bird with languid eye and plumage ruffled, her senses dulled to the sights and sounds that used to interest her. Fred's delirium, in which he seemed to be wandering out of her reach, tore her heart. After her first outburst against Mr. Wrench, she went about very quietly. Her one low cry was to Lydgate. She would follow him out of the room and put her hand on his arm, moaning out, "'Save my boy!' Once she pleaded, "'He has always been good to me, Mr. Lydgate. He never had a hard word for his mother.' as if poor Fred's sufferings were an accusation against him. All the deepest fibres of the mother's memory were stirred, and the young man, whose voice took a gentler tone when he spoke to her, was one with the babe whom she had loved, with a love new to her before he was born. "'I have good hope, Mrs. Vincy,' Lydgate would say. "'Come down with me, and let us talk about the food.' In that way he led her to the parlour where Rosamond was, and made a change for her, surprising her into taking some tea or broth which had been prepared for her. There was a constant understanding between him and Rosamond on these matters. He almost always saw her before going to the sick-room, and she appealed to him as to what she could do for Mamma. Her presence of mind and adroitness in carrying out his hints were admirable, and it is not wonderful that the idea of seeing Rosamond began to mingle itself with his interest in the case, especially when the critical stage was passed and he began to feel confident of Fred's recovery. In the more doubtful time he had advised calling in Dr. Sprague, who, if he could, would rather have remained neutral on Wrench's account, but after two consultations the conduct of the case was left to Lydgate, and there was every reason to make him assiduous. 
Morning and evening he was at Mr. Vincey's, and gradually the visits became cheerful, as Fred became simply feeble, and lay not only in need of the utmost petting, but conscious of it, so that Mrs. Vincey felt as if, after all, the illness had made a festival for her tenderness. Both father and mother held it an added reason for good spirits when old Mr. Featherstone sent messages by Lydgate, saying that Fred must make haste and get well, as he, Peter Featherstone, could not do without him, and missed his visit sadly. The old man himself was getting bedridden. Mrs. Vincey told these messages to Fred when he could listen, and he turned towards her his delicate, pinched face, from which all the thick blonde hair had been cut away, and in which the eyes seemed to have got larger, yearning for some word about Mary, wondering what she felt about his illness. No words passed his lips, but to hear with the eyes belongs to love's rare wit, and the mother, in the fullness of her heart, not only divined Fred's longing, but felt ready for any sacrifice in order to satisfy him. "'I can only see my boy strong again,' she said in her loving folly. "'And who knows? Perhaps Master of Stone Court, and he can marry anybody he likes, then.' "'Not if they won't have me, mother,' said Fred. The illness had made him childish, and tears came as he spoke. "'Oh, take a bit of jelly, my dear,' said Mrs. Vincey, secretly incredulous of any such refusal. She never left Fred's side when her husband was not in the house. And thus Rosamond was in the usual position of being much alone— Lydgate, naturally, never thought of staying long with her, yet it seemed that the brief impersonal conversations they had together were creating that peculiar intimacy which consists in shyness. They were obliged to look at each other in speaking, and somehow the looking could not be carried through as the matter of course which it really was. Lydgate began to feel this sort of consciousness unpleasant, and one day looked down, or anywhere, like an ill-worked puppet. But this turned out badly. The next day Rosamond looked down, and the consequence was that when their eyes met again, both were more conscious than before. There was no help for this in science, and as Lydgate did not want to flirt, there seemed to be no help for it in folly. It was therefore a relief when neighbours no longer considered the house in quarantine, and when the chances of seeing Rosamond alone were very much reduced. But that intimacy of mutual embarrassment, in which each feels that the other is feeling something, having once existed, its effect is not to be done away with. Talk about the weather and other well-bred topics is apt to seem a hollow device, and behaviour can hardly become easy unless it frankly recognises a mutual fascination, which, of course, did not mean anything deep or serious. This was the way in which Rosamond and Lydgate slid gracefully into ease and made their intercourse lively again. Visitors came and went as usual. There was once more music in the drawing-room, and all the extra hospitality of Mr. Vincey's mayorality returned. Lydgate, whenever he could, took his seat by Rosamond's side, and lingered to hear her music, calling himself her captive, meaning all the while not to be her captive. The preposterousness of the notion that he could at once set up a satisfactory establishment as a married man was a sufficient guarantee against danger. This play at being a little in love was agreeable, and did not interfere with graver pursuits. Flirtation, after all, was not necessarily a singeing process. Rosamond, on her part, had never enjoyed the day so much in her life before. She was sure of being admired by someone worth captivating, and she did not distinguish flirtation from love, either in herself or in another. She seemed to be sailing with a fair wind just whither she would go, and her thoughts were much occupied with a handsome house in Lilith Gate, which she hoped would, by and by, be vacant. She was quite determined, when she was married, to rid herself adroitly of all the visitors who were not agreeable to her at her father's, and she imagined the drawing-room in her favourite house with various styles of furniture. Certainly her thoughts were much occupied with Lydgate himself. He seemed to her almost perfect. 
If he had known his notes, so that his enchantment under her music had been less like an emotional elephant's, and if he had been able to discriminate better the refinements of her taste in dress, she could hardly have mentioned a deficiency in him. How different he was from young Plymdale or Mr. Caius Larcher! Those young men had not a notion of French, and could speak on no subject with striking knowledge, except, perhaps, the dyeing and carrying trades, which, of course, they were ashamed to mention. They were Middlemarch gentry, elated with their silver-headed whips and satin stockings, but embarrassed in their manners, and timidly jocose. Even Fred was above them, having at least the accent and manner of a university man. Whereas Lydgate was always listened to, bore himself with careless politeness of conscious superiority, and seemed to have the right clothes on by a certain natural affinity, without ever having to think about them. Rosamond was proud when he entered the room, and when he approached her with a distinguishing smile, she had a delicious sense that she was the object of enviable homage. If Lydgate had been aware of all the pride he excited in that delicate bosom, he might have been just as well pleased as any other man. Even the most densely ignorant of humoral pathology or fibrous tissue, he held it one of the prettiest attitudes of the feminine mind to adore a man's preeminence without too precise a knowledge of what it consisted in. But Rosamond was not one of those helpless girls who betray themselves unawares, and whose behaviour is awkwardly driven by their impulses, instead of being steered by wary grace and propriety. Do you imagine that her rapid forecast and rumination concerning house furniture and society were ever discernible in her conversation even with her mamma? On the contrary, she would have expressed the prettiest surprise and disapprobation if she had heard that another young lady had been detected in that immodest prematureness indeed would probably have disbelieved in its possibility for rosamond never showed any unbecoming knowledge and was always that combination of correct sentiments music dancing drawing elegant note-writing private album for extracted verse and perfect blonde loveliness which made the irresistible woman for the doomed man of that date think no unfair evil of her pray for she had no wicked plots nothing sordid or mercenary in fact, she never thought of money, except as something necessary which other people would always provide. She was not in the habit of devising falsehoods, and, if her statements were no direct clue to fact, why, they were not intended in that light. They were among her elegant accomplishments, intended to please. Nature had inspired many arts in finishing Mrs. Lemon's favourite pupil, who, by general consent, Fred's accepted, was a rare compound of beauty, cleverness, and amiability. Lydgate found it more and more agreeable to be with her, and there was no constraint now. There was a delightful interchange of influence in their eyes, and what they said had that superfluity of meaning for them, which is observable with some sense of flatness by a third person. Still, they had no interviews or asides from which a third person need have been excluded. In fact, they flirted, and Lydgate was secure in the belief that they did nothing else. If a man could not love and be wise, surely he could flirt and be wise at the same time, Really, the men in Middlemarch, except Mr. Fairbrother, were great bores, and Lydgate did not care about commercial politics or cards. What was he to do for relaxation? He was often invited to the Bulstrodes, but the girls there were hardly out of the schoolroom, and Mrs. Bulstrode's naive way of conciliating piety and worldliness, the nothingness of this life and the desirability of cut glass, the consciousness at once of filthy rags and the best damask, was not a sufficient relief from the weight of her husband's invariable seriousness. The Vincy's house, with all its faults, was the pleasanter by contrast. Besides, it nourished Rosamond, sweet to look at, as a half-opened blush rose, and adorned with accomplishments for the refined amusement of man. But he made some enemies, other than medical, by his success with Miss Vincy. One evening he came into the drawing-room rather late, when several other visitors were there. 
The card table had drawn off the dealers, and Mr. Ned Plymdale, one of the good matches in Middlemarch, though not one of its leading minds, was in tete-a-tete with Rosamond. He had brought the last keepsake, the gorgeous watered silk publication which marked modern progress at that time, and he considered himself very fortunate that he could be the first to look over it with her, dwelling on the ladies and gentlemen with shiny copper-plate cheeks and copper-plate smiles, and pointing to comic verses as capital and sentimental stories as interesting. Rosamond was gracious, and Mr. Ned was satisfied that he had the very best thing in art and literature as a medium for paying addresses, the very thing to please a nice girl. He had also reasons, deep rather than ostensible, for being satisfied with his own appearance. To superficial observers his chin had too vanishing an aspect, looking as if it were being gradually reabsorbed, and it did indeed cause him some difficulty about the fit of his satin stocks, for which chins were at that time useful. "'I think the Honourable Mrs. S. is something like you,' said Mr. Ned. He kept the book open at the bewitching portrait, and looked at it rather languishingly. "'Her back is very large. She seems to have sat for that,' said Rosamond, not meaning any satire, but thinking how red young Plymdale's hands were, and wondering why Lydgate did not come. She went on with her tatting all the while. "'I did not say she was as beautiful as you are,' said Mr. Ned, venturing to look from the portrait to its rival. "'I suspect you of being an adroit flatterer,' said Rosamond, feeling sure that she should have to reject this young man a second time. But now Lydgate came in. The book was closed before he reached Rosamond's corner, and as he took his seat with easy confidence on the other side of her, young Plymdale's jaw fell like a barometer towards the cheerless side of change. Rosamond enjoyed not only Lydgate's presence, but its effect. She liked to excite jealousy. "'What a late-comer you are,' she said, as they shook hands. "'Mamma had given you up a while ago. How do you find Fred?' "'As usual. Going on well. But slowly. I want him to go away, to Stone Court, for example. But your mamma seems to have some objection.' "'Poor fellow,' said Rosamond prettily. "'You will see Fred so changed,' she added, turning to the other suitor. "'We have looked to Mr. Lydgate as our guardian angel during this illness.' Mr. Ned smiled nervously, while Lydgate, drawing the keepsake towards him and opening it, gave a scornful laugh, and tossed up his chill, as if in wonderment at human folly. "'What are you laughing at so profanely?' said Rosamond, with bland neutrality. "'I wonder which would turn out to be the silliest, the engravings or the writing here,' said Lydgate, in his most convinced tone, while he turned over the pages quickly, seeming to see all through the book in no time, and showing his large white hands to much advantage, as Rosamond thought. "'Do look at this bridegroom coming out of a church. Did you ever see such a sugared invention, as the Elizabethans used to say?' "'Did any haberdasher ever look so smirking? "'Well, I will answer for it. "'The story makes him one of the first gentlemen in the land.' "'You are so severe. "'I am frightened at you,' said Rosamond, "'keeping her amusement duly moderate. "'Poor young Plymdale had lingered with admiration "'over this very engraving, and his spirit was stirred. "'There are a great many celebrated people "'writing in the keepsake at all events,' "'said he, in a tone at once piqued and timid. "'This is the first time I have heard it called silly.' "'I think I shall turn round on you and accuse you of being a goth,' said Rosamond, looking at Lydgate with a smile. "'I suspect you know nothing about Lady Blessington and L.E.L.' Rosamond herself was not without relish for these writers, but she did not readily commit herself by admiration, and was alive to the slightest hint that anything was not, according to Lydgate, in the very highest taste. "'But Sir Walter Scott—I suppose Mr. Lydgate knows him,' said young Plymdale, a little cheered by this advantage. "'Oh, I read no literature now.' "'said Lydgate, shutting the book and pushing it away. "'I read so much when I was a lad "'that I suppose it will last me all my life. "'I used to know Scott's poems by heart.' "'I should like to know when you left off,' 
said Rosamond, because then I might be sure that I knew something which you did not know. Mr. Lydgate would say that is not worth knowing, said Mr. Ned, purposely caustic. On the contrary, said Lydgate, showing no smart, but smiling with exasperating confidence at Rosamond, it would be worth knowing by the fact that Miss Vincy could tell me. Young Plymdale soon went to look at the whist-playing, thinking that Lydgate was one of the most conceited, unpleasant fellows it had ever been his ill fortune to meet. "'How rash you are!' said Rosamond, inwardly delighted. "'Do you see that you have given offence? What, is it Mr. Plymdale's book? Oh, I'm sorry I didn't think about it. I shall begin to admit what you said of yourself when you first came here, that you were a bear, and wanted teaching by the birds. Well, there is a bird who can teach me what she will. Don't I listen to her willingly?' To Rosamond it seemed as if she and Lydgate were as good as engaged. That they were some time to be engaged had long been an idea in her mind, and ideas, we know, tend to a more solid kind of existence, the necessary materials being at hand. It is true Lydgate had the counter-idea of remaining unengaged, but this was a mere negative, a chateau eased by our resolves, which themselves were capable of shrinking. Circumstance was almost sure to be on the side of Rosamond's idea, which had a shaping activity and looked through watchful blue eyes, whereas Lydgate's lay blind and unconcerned as a jellyfish which gets melted without knowing it. That evening, when he went home, he looked at his files to see how a process of maceration was going on, with undisturbed interest, and he wrote out his daily notes with as much precision as usual. The reveries from which it was difficult for him to detach himself were ideal constructions of something else than Rosamond's virtues and the primitive tissue was still his fair unknown. Moreover, he was beginning to feel some zest for the growing, though half-suppressed, feud between him and the other medical men, which was likely to become more manifest, now that Bulstrode's method of managing the new hospital was about to be declared, and there were various inspiriting signs that his non-acceptance by some of Peacock's patients might be counterbalanced by the impression he had produced in other quarters. Only a few days later, when he had happened to overtake Rosamond on the Lowick Road, and had got down from his horse to walk by her side until he had quite protected her from a passing drove, he had been stopped by a servant on horseback, with a message calling him to a house of some importance, where Peacock had never attended, and it was the second instance of this kind. The servant was Sir James Chetham's, and the house was Lowick Manor. End of chapter 27